Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm Ian Rickson. I'm a theatre director. And welcome to my podcast, What I Love. In all the time I've worked in the theatre, I've been lucky to meet some extraordinary artists. In this series, I speak with some of them in the silence of an empty theatre stage and ask them about three things that they love, a song, a film and a piece of writing. I'm looking to discover why we especially cherish certain things and how we reveal ourselves through the things we love. Russell Brand is one of those figures who's so firmly entrenched in the public eye that sometimes it's hard to pinpoint why we came to know them in the first place. For a time, he seemed to pop up everywhere. He performed stand-up, presented radio and TV shows, published books and appeared in Hollywood films. Sometimes there was notoriety and scandal, but over time, he began to occupy a different space espousing his political opinions in well-shared YouTube interviews and extolling the virtues of a more spiritual existence. Now Russell Brand occupies another chapter in the story of his life, having moved from London to Berkshire a few years ago, where he set up home with his wife and their two young daughters. He presents a weekly podcast, Under the Skin, looking at the defining ideas of our time, with guests from the worlds of academia, popular culture and the arts all of which sets us up for our own conversation, which took place at Norden Farm Centre for the Arts in Maidenhead, early this autumn, 2020. Russell. Hello, Ian. I've listened to so many of your podcasts and how you engender a culture for people to share, to philosophise, to open our minds and when the lockdown really kicked in I thought about all these spaces that are lying dormant empty stages theatres in rest and what it would be like to occupy some of those spaces but to occupy it with love to just get people to come in and share three things they love and to use those Loves, and I know it's an impossible brief because you could probably choose a hundred different things for each component as a way of creating a conversation which is searching and intimate and captures where we are now. So thanks for finding time to come in. Oh, it's, it's lovely to be able to do it. Interesting to do it in a, a space that's built for congregation. Empty is curious, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. You understand that thing of theatres having a church-like quality where people gather for the word Mm. and gather for something hopefully healing and transformative. Mm. And you can go out in front of 2,000 people at Hammersmith Apollo 
and it's one kind of experience. And I'm told you come here to Norden Farm, yes, which is quite near where you live. We're in Maidenhead today to try out material, to check out your local people. Yes. Sometimes in this room, that seats a couple of hundred, I think, maybe 250. Um, but also in a studio space that's smaller still, like maybe 100, 110. And it's a really lovely, artsy environment. But it being Maidenhead and all, you get a real good mix yeah. of people. When you said a space like this in rest, what kind of antennae response are you having to being on an empty stage and you've been pretty locked down where you live and suddenly you're out of the ecosystem of your house it made me feel as soon as well not as soon as i came in because i was captivated by you quite naturally but <laughs> after i had <laughs> ridden that little emotional storm in i reminded of the feeling when you're when i was a kid in performance spaces and when I got a bit older and had been to Italia Conti and when I'd be in theatres, that feeling of an immediate sense of purposeness that has always engaged me both uh, egoically, but also beyond that, both the small S self and the capital S mm. self, like tingle mm. at being in the, I feel like, oh, you're here, you're mm. supposed to do something. And, you know, when I've gone and seen shows, you know, even up till recently I always feel like in a theatre I have to sort of contain myself mm. a little bit especially if I'm in the audience because mm. I feel like mm, I feel yeah. the pull of it but the wraparound holistic care you take to be able to release the beast when you go out on stage and the way you really make sure you have a runway to both the capital S self and the internal self takes real care now, doesn't it? I love watching you do that when I've seen you prepare for a gig, whether it's in somewhere small or somewhere big. And it takes me to your first choice, which was your film, Bill Hicks's Revelations from 1993. And we watched this man in black, part cowboy, part Johnny Cash, quite rock and roll, swan onto the stage with such attitude and I guess you would have been around 18 when this would have come out probably on VHS and I know your earlier cultural diet comedy wise would have been David Jason, Blackadder. Into that comes Bill Hicks and essentially it's a film of his last tour in England. What did it incite when you watched it and what tribe did it make you feel you wanted to join? It is an entirely original experience to see Bill Hicks because I was 18 and it was being shown on Channel 4 as a posthumous tribute. He had just died. And so I only learned of Bill Hicks after he had died. At, I think he was 33 or maybe... 32. Right, even younger. What I felt was, and still feel watching it again as I did you know, prior to our chat, was that he is so potent, vital, vigorous, uh, um, passionate and sincere, but also he is able to introduce mischief, has a darkness in him, obviously, and 
I, when I, I was sorry, at 18, I didn't, like, I hadn't, you know, like, watched, like, loads of Lenny Bruce. I'd have been aware of Richard Pryor from the films and stuff, but comedically I'd have been into, like, Billy Connolly on stage. I wouldn't have seen that kind of purpose in a comic before. And I could still remember feeling lit up by him and sort of tingling, uh, excitement and anticipation, his intensity, his passion. What I didn't realise then, and realise now, obviously, when I watch Bill Hicks, is that Bill Hicks is a very sort of in a sense classical comic the work he does is very very rigorous it's very like now you can see how he's escalating how he inserts just two minutes of uh, at the top of the film revelations two minutes of material for the uk audience then he's straight into very well honed los angeles based material he's transitioned into the first great joke of that set you know we looked at the receipt when talking about the <laughs> gulf war arms sales and obviously that how the themes that he's exploring are still apposite today and obviously have been exacerbated in the years that have intervened. He's not like a chaos comic, Bill Hicks. He's not like Billy Connolly. He's not someone who just goes out there and like trusts his luck and leaves loads of room. You know, in documentaries about Bill Hicks, he's from the South. It's clear that he regarded himself kind of as a preacher as much as a comic. What are you? Are you more of the chaotic, go out there and see what happens? Or the admiration you express for Bill Hicks and how well-oiled it is, even though it feels so spontaneous. Where do you sit in that dichotomy? A professional comic is a, a demand of the job that you create content. You know, you can't go out at the Dominion where he was or the venues of that capacity and improvise because you, there's too many variables. But I like to create space in my shows for that. And... I must say that I've never found it easy to work on content for as long as someone like Bill Hicks does. You see him, different instantiations of that material again and again and again in various sets, in various formats, particularly now you can access this stuff online. You'll see him doing it in different tones, different pitches. You know, For all we know, the Revelations version of him talking about American Gladiators, that might not be his favourite version of that or his favourite version of the JFK shooting or whatever. So... I enjoy the liveness, I enjoy the chaos, I enjoy that, but I suppose what I loved about Bill Hicks, and I suppose what most comics, because he's very much a comedian, comedian Bill Hicks, is his sense of purpose, his willingness to tackle important subjects, that he's not frivolous. But, but for me, yeah, I do enjoy more freedom, and I don't have the discipline to return to <laughs> the stuff as much as he does. Yeah, that's so interesting, and I love what you said before about the preacher comic or the prophet comedian. He's so passionate in terms of being anti-advertising, anti-fundamentalist Christian, anti-gun, anti-censorship, whether it be smoking, drugs, anti-republican. And the way he is fueled by fire and by a political urge to attack Yet he's come on and he says, uh, brothers and sisters, friends and neighbours, and without irony, vibrations in the mind of the one true God whose name is love. <laughs> so he seems to be transmitting on several frequencies. There's the kind of political, there's this sort of cynical, and there's this reaching where he closes towards transcendence and love and peace. 
Yeah, that's what I enjoy about him. And of course, perhaps one of his most famous pieces of material, that it's just a ride that he yeah. closes on, talks about the, the whole of our life being a kind yeah. of a diorama, not yeah. a secondary reality. And I suppose when you look at him, his life, he took a lot of psychedelics, he got clean from drugs and alcohol. So he was a mystic in some regard. But you're right, Ian, that was married to a kind of front foot firebrand intensity that I enjoyed. When I first watched that on the television, not knowing how often these days with the awareness and the amount of PR that goes around, how often do you encounter something new? How often do you watch something and go, my God, what is this? (laughs) You know, like when he did that stop putting a goddamn dollar sign on everything on this planet, I remember like, oh my God, the sort of beauty, the power, the truth of what... The pain of it. I mean, he takes a risk there, doesn't he? Yeah, that kind of robustness, that kind of boldness, that willingness to be judged. It'd be interesting to see how he would survive in that environment that's subsequently come about with the critiquing of people that are willing to take quite um, polemic stands, such as he takes throughout that set. But I've seen such beauty, uh, power, truth, and ultimately, as you say, in love in what he does, that he overwhelms me still. Yeah. You touched on the battles he had with his own addiction and seems to me sobriety transformed him he had these early struggles and he was on stage by about 16 (laughs) and then everyone was just giving him you know slightly dodgily like cocaine and alcohol and he was going on stage drunk then he had a really tricky period where he withdrew got clean got sober and came back fully himself And I thought that was quite a profound idea that sobriety can make you even braver, even bolder, more yourself. I think that's what it inevitably has to do when you recognise what the function of addiction is in most addicts' lives. It's to provide a kind of spiritual context that's lacking in their indigenous environment and when I think of it mythically in which I know is a context that you will enjoy I'm minded of the phrase the grail will come again and the grail came early to Bill Hicks 13 14 15 on stage in Austin Texas but no child no adolescent at least is ready for that but the grail will come again if in the middle years if you're willing to accept the challenge again which often will mean you're going on the quest again, but this time you're doing the quest for a different reason. You understand the truth of what it is that you're pursuing. And I suppose perhaps the reason that we idolise, or I idolise that character is because I see the archetypal truths that his life is aligning with. Do you think he purposefully called the grail to come again? Is that a conscious choice or...? Do you have to just be in a state of readiness? My sense is that it's a state of preparation, that you cannot call the grail again, that it comes and you won't even know what the challenge is. Is it going to come as a parent? Is it going to come in your professional life? Ultimately, it's a derivative of a spiritual journey, so it could be manifest in any area of your life. But I think it's realising the truth of who you are and to use the term recovery, as I've been taught to understand it, recovering the person you're intended to be, that many of us split off, we separate from our intended journey co-opted by a culture that contains a lot of influences that are malevolent 
and it takes a while to come together again. Um, I spoke to that anthropologist, mythologist sort of um, guy, Michael Mead, who I'm sure you must love, huh? Sure. And he talked about like a myth from Borneo of the half-boy. A boy is born in the village, just a half-boy, and he has to go out and find the other half himself. You can't find the other half in the village. You've got to go find it. And eventually he finds the other half. They can't get on their conflict in part. Enduring their fight, they fall into the water, and beneath the water, the water heating up and sizzling, they become combined. But when they're first combined, they can't cooperate together. They go back to the village all gangly and meet an elder on the edge of town, and the elder says, we've been waiting for you. And this sort of idea of um, recovering your own purpose, of becoming whole, I suppose, you know, there are as many ways of finding yourself as there are people because of our seemingly infinite variety. Because the Bible is pretty much shoved down his throat from about the age of five. And he's having to go to church, I don't know, twice a week. And that Southern Baptist fundamentalism allows him actually to perhaps extract some of the mythology from that creed, but then actually to let it fire up inside him and inspire the work. But you look at the early material and it's very misanthropic and he labels himself as vicious and cold and there's some, you know, worrying misogynist stuff. Post the recovery and my access point to him, there is this other domain which is, as you say, preacher-like, which is about consciousness. And you refer to that whole climax, which is both political and hypnotically spiritual. Yeah. That just must have been dazzling to witness in 1993. I couldn't believe it. I mean, isn't it like that any artist that you admire or connect to, what you see is, oh my God, they're saying that thing that I've been feeling, that I've been trying to iterate. They're saying it or they're painting it or they're singing it or whatever form it's hitting you in, they're saying it. Like the, I was told once, the final words of the Bhagavad Gita after Krishna has explained that, you know, reality to Arjuna in all his forms and this is the, what happens if you join with Krishna, this is what happens if you go the material path that Arjuna's last words after hearing this story is, I remember remember that it's all happening simultaneously that it's non-local like in the world of quantum physics the electron is here and there and both and neither a super state of absolute potentialities and bill hicks is operating on several frequencies here i'm sincere here i'm taking the piss here's this misanthropic pornographic stuff the goat boy riffs that he does and but it ultimately comes from a place of love and saying that the very fabric of our lives, this thing we're so sincere about, our roles, our persona and our position, that it's an artefact. You can take the game seriously if you want, but know that it's a game. The last words of the Bhagavad Gita you mentioned. The last words of Hicks. Pretty much you hear in Revelations because he doesn't do another tour. And young Russell on Channel 4 must have listened to this. And I wonder whether you could just read. Is it where it's marked yeah, here, mate? Yeah, the last words of Hicks, which is the last words of this gig. You've been fantastic, and I hope you enjoyed it. There is a point. Is there a point to all of this? Let's find a point. Is there a point to my act? I would say there is. I have to. 
The world is like a ride at an amusement park and when you choose to go on it, you think that it's real because that's how powerful our minds are. And the ride goes up and down and round and round. It has thrills and chills and it's very brightly coloured and it's loud and it's fun for a while. Some people have been on the ride for a long time and they begin to question, is this real or is this just the ride? And other people have remembered and they come back to us and they say, hey, don't worry, don't be afraid ever because this is just the ride and we... Kill those people! <laughs> Shut him up! We have a lot of money invested in this ride! Shut him up! Look at my furrows of worry! Look at my big bank account and my family! This has to be real! It's just a ride, but we always kill those good guys who try and tell us. Do you ever notice that? And we let the demons run amok. But it doesn't matter because it's just a ride and we can change it anytime we want. It's only a choice. No effort, no work, no job, no savings of money. A choice right now between fear and love. The eyes of fear want you to put bigger locks on your doors, buy guns, close yourself off. The eyes of love instead see all of us as one. Here's what we can do to change the world right now to a better ride. Take all the money that we spend on weapons of defence each year and instead spend it feeding and clothing and educating the poor of the world, which it would many times over, not one human being excluded. And we could explore space together, both inner and outer, forever in peace. Thank you very much. You've been great. I hope you enjoyed it. London, you were fantastic. Thank you. Thank you very much. Then he mimes his own death, of course. It's, it's amazing, there, isn't it? I mean, that could be you on stage in the way you can elide from a willy joke into the sublime. And what you were saying about elders, Bill Hicks must have been some sort of elder for the prototype Russell, ingesting this and making meaning. And it's kind of poignant, isn't it, as well, that he, within a year he's dead. Yeah. And does the body know that's coming? And there he is giving us this last paragraph. Mm. Yeah, it's, um, I really love that. Thank you. For, I've never read that out before. It's really lovely. To, Did it do something to you? Oh, yeah, it made me want to cry. And like it, I sort of, I know the tune, you know. Did you speed up a bit to stop crying? Felt like, felt like uh, you got getting somewhere. I'm not directing you. I'm just more... <laughs> How can you not, you? You're on an empty stage with an actor. No, I could feel it kicking in. And then I thought, oh, you just picked up the cadence because it was so meaningful. Control. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, you're probably right, and It probably lent into my um, ability to exist at a higher cadence to avert the emotion that you would have, had it been performative, would have demanded I experience. It's interesting, I suppose, isn't it? Like, maybe with a mantra or a chant or whatever, it puts you in line with his transmission frequency, and I would have been doing that because I would have watched that again and again and again and would again you? and again and again. Yeah, the same as I would have done when I was younger with 40 Towers of Fools and Horses and all the BBC comedies that I grew up loving. Till the tunes of them yes. become recognisable as much as the translative content. Yeah. You, you recognise what tonal, the tonal language. But there's meaning in rhythm. Yeah, and I think the great transition in that is like the bit that I like the transition when he becomes the person that's got a lot of money mm. invested in the ride. Mm. That's for me, that's the comic car of mm. it that he gives us. I've got a lot of money invested in this ride. It's a ridiculous, <laughs> it's a ridiculous thing to say yeah. that we're all invested in an illusion. So we sort of have to believe in the illusion. As much as the material world is an mm. illusion because of the many social and economic constructs that bind us all together into our individual cultural roles, the illusion of the persona, like as Eckhart Tolle says, you know, if we were describing this room, we would likely describe the objects in it, but we would not describe the space. And Eckhart Tolle maintains our awareness is the space become the space, become the vibrant nothingness of the space. And I suppose what 
he made me think, Bill Hicks, is there ain't no point doing comedy unless you're looking for that space, unless you're looking for that. Now, I would never be so um, sort of narcissistic as to say that I attained it because he's a sort of a unique one-off character, but he gave me some strokes and that's the area. And it turns out, as I said to you when we were first talking about it from a more practical perspective, I'm not a word-by-word comic. I've taken stupid, stupid risks, notably, as I'm sure I told you before, when I did a gig once with Seinfeld and Sarah Silverman and fucking Gary Shandling and Jay Leno and I just improvised and the first 20 minutes I did I was brilliant and so funny and then the bit where Seinfeld was actually there I did something a bit of material that was very loose about meeting the Dalai Lama it was not good mate it bothers me still (laughs) do you think they judged you or was the bigger judge you on yourself Seinfeld might have judged me. That day. <laughs> He's a pretty severe dude. But Sarah Silverman, there was a bit where I went, this isn't going well, but if you're expecting perfection, there you go. This is when you find out I'm perfect. And she really, I really enjoyed that. And I think comics like to see each other bomb a little bit. Yeah. But, um, you know, I didn't... I felt like I wanted to spend two hours with Seinfeld going, yeah. look, that, could I show you some videos? Yeah. What about that bit? Yeah. Bill Hicks wouldn't have done that. He would have done something polished. Well... Have we got that footage? I mean, I'm sure there are tryouts and versions of the material. He's become so revered Mm. that maybe we invest in his genius too much. And he's just a human being. Well, you're quite right, of course, because it's the Richard Pryor, I think, live on the strip, where Pryor's wearing like a red silk shirt, you know. That's like a masterclass, one of the great stand-up sets of, you know, that there's ever been. But apparently, he did that two nights. Night one, he had to stop and have a sit down. It was like, yeah. it was terrible, apparently. Yeah. They used yeah. all of night two for the video, and it's gone down yeah. into, like, history. Yeah. So, yeah, you're right. There's fallibility and flaws, and, yeah, yeah, obviously. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. So... 18-year-old Russell watched Bill Hicks on Channel 4 in 1993. And it takes me to your next choice, The Mm. Selfish Giant by Oscar Wilde. Can you remember when The Selfish Giant came into your orbit? My friend, Mark Stone, who died in a motorbike accident for some reason or another, had this compendium of Oscar Wilde children's stories, which would be an unlikely thing for him to have had as I think about it, but I feel like the first version I read had, you know, to Mark, like an inscription to him in the, at the front of the book. He, I was friends with him from when I was about 14 to when I was about sort of 16, 17, so I must have read it in mid-adolescence, and that must have been when I encountered it, but I've, 
It's one, again, like Revelations, it's something that I've always returned to and sort of read in drunken melancholy when I was in my 20s. And I've read it now to... And I've not read it to my kids, they're too young. But I've read it, like, at um, festivals and Have stuff. You? I read it a lot, because it's a... Like, yeah, I guess it's a code, you know. That's a, I don't know why it is. That thing goes right into me. Because there weren't many books in Grey's in the young Russell's household. In fact, young Russell went out and bought a dictionary, didn't he? To learn words, to become more eloquent. And somehow your mate, who then dies in a motorcycle accident, is the parser of this code. And it's got to mark in the front piece and then it sits inside Russell all these years. Mm. There's got to be meaning in that, hasn't there? Well, yes, I suppose there must be. Once when I was off school, there was an Oscar Wilde biopic on TV. Was there? Yeah, not Stephen Fry. This is long before that. And it was proper rubbish. Like, with, like, always engineering situations where he could say, well, it's the pursuit of the inedible, <laughs> like looking for epigrammic opportunities for Oscar Wilde. But nonetheless, I remember thinking, this dude is pretty funny. And then I can remember watching a film version of Ernest and then, um, like, that it's actually funny. You know, because, like, my experience of school, like I'm sure a lot of people, is being told, yeah, you're, this is culture, crack on and then reading it thinking this is fucking boring and like being annoyed by it and like it's dense and it's work and it's eat your vegetables and like I remember like watching that importance of being earnest on the telly and he was you needn't sit there calmly eating muffins well, I can't eat muffins in an agitated way I might get butter on my cuffs and thinking <laughs> oh these people are all that like, drawn to as hell and, and like, you've drawn on that dandy quality haven't you in your work yeah I like glibness because the comedic dismissal exhibited in the plays that he writes is that trickster ability to render as in Bill Hicks's this is just a ride that for me the key comedic equation is you're taking life seriously life is not serious life is a joke and like to be able to sort of slip between mm. levels, to jump between dimensions, mm. to hop between frequencies and mm. make those kind of observations, to treat life as play, for mm. me, that is the comedic bullseye. That's lovely. Well, anyone should just read The Selfish Giant. It will take you five minutes. It's about a giant who's hung out with his Cornish ogre friend. And there's a lovely line. I wrote it down. The giant comes back from his time with the Cornish ogre. He had said all that he had to say, for his conversation was limited. And he finds all these kids in his garden, and their kind of childlike playfulness makes the garden so fertile and beautiful. And then he banishes the children. He puts a sign up and he builds a wall. And the garden, somewhat like this theatre, is in this lockdown. No sun surrounded by snow, frost, hail and the north wind. And then the children sneak back in and everything changes and the giant thaws. What I enjoy about The Selfish Giant is that, again, the sincerity and that it's Christian, man. That's like a, the story about the birth of Christ in the, I, I suppose, in a hardened heart. You can't extract it from wild. You can't separate it from wild. That Oscar Wilde is like a modern-day myth, a 
genius, destroyed by his own genius. Yes, of course, prejudice of others, bigotry, etc. But like you know, from what I know of the life of Wilder, I wouldn't claim to be a scholar. There's definitely hubris is, plays its part in his downfall. Again, now looking at like you know, like at any genius, Wilde's working in mythic tones and emblems, and that there's a sincerity. Like when you consider that Wilde's work for adults is so knowing and acerbic and wry, he's passion when dealing with children it breaks my heart that that's a person that was in prison not far from here that was destroyed in that manner because you're not losing the devastating wit that creates Lady Windermere's family and puts me in earnest it's the man that created the selfish giant or the happy prince or whatever that's what gets me and what I suppose I like about the story is I feel like the garden is the everything. The giant is the, I guess, the masculine aspects that wants to defend and wants isolation. The children are both the shadow and the chaos that's required. You need to be able to have a relationship with your own chaos, your own child, your own unborn. And the fact that it gives him such love. But also, I think, what, what happens to me at the end of the story, you know, the, the giant's death and the, the beauty of his salvation is that like great art must it at some point transcends literal translation there's a point where you can't track it anymore you can't go oh this means that and this means that and that's the you know because why is wild introducing christ into this uh, up until that point rather pagan tale about giants and flowers and nature and talking birds and all this kind of stuff why is jesus turning up and jesus in the form of the child i mean what's fucking going on you know and because of course Wilde is informed by numerous different myths he's writing at the time he's writing I don't know what Victorian London's like what kind of cultural like you know what, what role his own shame played in that as a bisexual leader or gay man I guess we have to conclude you know what he felt about that and the, the fact that he would have created these stories probably for his sons you know yeah he's 34 it's 1888 he doesn't have any more children after writing this story and he starts to more assertively pursue his sexuality. <laughs> and that's really poignant, isn't it, that at that moment of real struggle, he writes this sublime mythic story. And you refer to this boy that comes into the garden and the giant's kind of transfixed by him. And initially it seems like the giant is in psychoanalytical terms, having an encounter with a wounded childhood self, that somehow him seeing himself manifest in this boy who's crying, who can't reach up a tree, enables the giant to feel empathy. Mm. And there's something about how that opens him up. And then he obviously lets everybody else in. And then the child comes back and he's then much more a Christian allegorical figure. And he says, the giant's eyes were so full of tears. And the boy says, nay, but these are the wounds of love. Which just explodes in the consciousness, doesn't it? That love has that wounding, that attachment can feel dangerous and beautiful, and it can open us up. And maybe like Bill Hicks with his last paragraph, the giant can then die because he's reached a state of unity 
with someone else, with himself. It's a revelatory tale, which I suppose all stories have to be to some degree, otherwise they wouldn't have any progression to them. But what I mean is, is that the function of the child that can't get into the tree is to reveal to the giant that the giant is not who he believes himself to be and that he awakens, it creates an awakening. And however you're using the figure of Christ, even in this sort of very peculiar context, Christ is a vehicle for enlightenment, for transcendence and for union with God. And the, the vulnerability of the child makes the giant realise that beauty and love is what's important. And then the final revelation, when he meets the child again and that the child has the stigmata, that the transience, that even the, sort of the, the beauty of the child and the love of the child is not something that you're going to have forever. Death is coming, death is coming. Yeah. And I suppose in the end it becomes, after first awakening love in the giant, it finally awakens acceptance. You don't even really, you realise yourself to be this, but then ultimately you have to realise yourself to be nothing. Yeah. Russell, given you chose it, can I just hear a little bit of it? Yes. This is after the giant has put up the sign, trespassers will be prosecuted. He's put up a wall around his garden to keep out outsiders. Up to there, to, from, from yeah. here yeah, yeah. to here. Brilliant. One morning, the giant was lying awake in bed when he heard some lovely music. It sounded so sweet to his ears that he thought it must be the king's musicians passing by. It was really only a little linnet singing outside his window, but it was so long since he had heard a bird sing in his garden that it seemed to him to be the most beautiful music in the world. Then the hail stopped dancing over his head, and the north wind ceased roaring, and a delicious perfume came to him through the open casement. I believe the spring has come at last, said the giant, and he jumped out of bed and looked out. What did he see? He saw a most wonderful sight. Through a little hole in the wall, the children had crept in, and they were sitting in the branches of the trees. In every tree that he could see, there was a little child, and the trees were so glad to have the children back again that they'd covered themselves with blossoms and were waving their arms gently above the children's heads. The birds were flying about and twittering with delight, and the flowers were looking up through the green grass and laughing. It was a lovely scene. Only in one corner, it was still winter. It was the farthest corner of the garden, and in it was standing a little boy. He was so small that he could not reach up to the branches of the tree, and he was wandering all around it, crying bitterly. The poor tree was still quite covered with frost and snow, and the north wind was blowing and roaring above it. Climb up, little boy, said the tree, and it bent its branches down as low as it could, but the boy was too tiny. And the giant's heart melted as he looked out. How selfish I have been, he said. Now I know why the spring would not come here. I will put that little boy on top of the tree, and then I will knock down the wall, and my garden shall be the children's playground for ever and ever. He was really very sorry for what he had done. So he crept downstairs and opened the front door quite softly and went out into the garden. But when the children saw him, they were so frightened that they ran away and the garden became winter again. 
Only the little boy did not run, for his eyes were so full of tears that he didn't see the giant coming. And the giant stole up behind him and took him gently in his hand and put him up into the tree. And the tree broke at once into blossom and the birds came and sang on it. And the little boy stretched out his two arms and flung them round the giant's neck and kissed him. And the other children, when they saw that the giant wasn't wicked any longer, came running back. And with them came the spring. It is your garden now, little children, said the giant. And he took a great axe and knocked down the wall. And when the people were going to market at 12 o'clock, they found the giant playing with the children in the most beautiful garden they had ever seen. Good work, Russell. Oh, thanks. And I like the kind of Alec Guinness quality of the giant. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You've got to give him gravitas in. Otherwise, who's carrying the story? Yeah. I mean, you went for RP as well. Um. <laughs> you don't want a cockney giant. Otherwise, how's he got this garden? What's he done? It was so lovely to hear that. And I'm fascinated by this small child. Because for me, why would you be a giant? And why would you build walls if inside you wasn't a wounded self? Mm. And the epiphany for me is the giant panning through the panoply of all these children and seeing a version of himself and fusing with that. And then everything relaxes and he gets into <laughs> a sort of state of grace and then can ultimately die. Yeah, that makes sense because... You know, with myths and dreams and fairy tales, and it is a fairy tale, I guess, and everything is the self, all contained in the self, so all aspects, the garden is the self, the giant is the self, the child is the self, the various meteorological extremities and the seasonal changes, all self. So I like that analysis. I like that he saw that vulnerability, and it, yes, there was revelation, epiphany in that. If... We stay on that mythic level and the garden is the self. Also, England is a garden, isn't it? Mm. And we can get involved in rhetoric about closing our borders and walling ourselves up. So I'm fascinated by this hole that the kids get through. And I'm thinking about borders of the land and I'm thinking about the way I create fortifications in myself, sometimes to my own damage. And what Wilde is doing there, that this wall suddenly has a hole in it, which creates the last act of the story where all the kids come back in. Mm. What does it mean to you? I reckon in storytelling terms, you're allowed a little bit of chaos. The element of chaos is something that we all have to contend with. Order rests on chaos. Our attempts at the imposition of order are a denial of the fundamental condition of life that requires chaos. The trickster figure must come to be at ease with chaos, must become chaos's agent. If we don't, then the chaos will surely consume us. I feel that it's not the duty of the self to create the whole. The whole is coming. <laughs> chaos is coming. Death is coming. You're gonna, everything's going. Everything must go. Fire sale, fire sale. So in a sense, it was like as we discussed earlier, it's preparatory. Are you going to create the conditions that when chaos comes, when the hole in the wall emerges, you'll be ready for it? Because I suppose the giant 
could have gone, well, fuck this, these kids are out of here, particularly that vulnerable one that can't get up a tree. I suppose, of course, though, he recognised that spring had been bought by the children and he realised you cannot have creativity, you cannot have uh, potency without chaos, without the hole on the wall, without um, transformation, without the sort of trade, without dialogue with chaos, you stagnate. So... I suppose that it's being ready for that revelation and not being in denial of that revelation when it comes. If in the pie chart of Russell 20 years ago the amount of chaos was 70% in your life Mm. and now it might be, I'm being presumptuous here, 7%. I mean, you need enough of the catnip of chaos to make life interesting. Mm. Where does that leave you on the archetypes? Because the trickster shaman archetype that allowed you to emerge into public consciousness and allows you to caper on a massive stage with absolute brilliance is one archetype. But today you're very generously showing us a different kind of archetype of Russell, the sage, the elder, the mystic. And that's a side that many people might know less of you. I've been taught that part of understanding life and deploying myth in your life is to know where you are on the path. As Joseph Campbell says, if you are in your 40s and you're still scared of your mother, then you need to read more myth. If you're in your 80s and you're still frustrated by your golf scores you need to read some mythology. There was a point where my awareness was so limited that I had no choice but to inhabit that role. As awareness expands, usually through suffering, disappointment, failure of various kinds, new information comes. The hole in the wall is not favourable when it first appears. It's a bloody inconvenience. But, yeah, through it, more potency can travel, more power can travel. I've become aware that Myth is more true because it didn't happen. The practical, mundane exchanges of the ordinary material world will never have the truth in them of the things that didn't happen. You're a director and a storyteller. More truth in Uncle Vanya than there is available in study in 24 hours of you know regular activity in a metropolis, probably. So Because it's distilled truth, distilled truth. So what I reckon is that there was a point where... I, that relationship with chaos, I didn't have a choice but to have that relationship with chaos. That was the hand I'd been dealt. But where I've been fortunate is that I recognised where I am because uh, I've turned to people further along the path than me. When I had like what would be termed prosaically as a midlife crisis of like, I don't want to do what I'm doing for a living. I don't want to live where I live. I don't want to hang with the people I'm hanging with. I don't want to do like, all of this. I turned to someone and he said to me, this is exactly where you should be. This is the grail. The grail has come again. Now, you can either say, oh, I'm 40. I'm going to double down and try and see if I can still sleep with, in my case, as a heterosexual person, younger people than me and still crack on with all of that, or recognise that it's gone. It's over. It's over for you. It's been over for a long, long time. Same way as drugs is over, same way as fame, celebrity, it's all, it ends, it all ends. And 
if you resist it and try and sort of grip on, no, build a hole in the wall, get these kids out of here. <laughs> then, you know, I'm going to get another earring, I'm going to dye my hair, I'm going to get a sports car. <laughs> then you're in trouble. But, like, you know, thankfully, I allowed that death to take place. I had the funeral for it, let it take place. I'm lucky that many of the mythic events in my own life have been so archetypally candid and plain. Like, now you must become father. If you don't become a father, you're going to be in a real trouble because <laughs> children are coming. And if you can't look after them, if you're outsourcing, if you're trying to continue the sort of archetype of the man-child, playboy, wild man, well, it's going to happen to these kids that are clearly were not yet born but were plainly coming. How did that calling happen? Failure. Now you must have kids. Failure. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think it was like, this is not working. I'm dying in my own life. The ego had taken me. It's like, and I'm not suggesting for a second I haven't got an ego. Of course I have. But like that version of my persona, as I was experiencing it, and it was not working anymore. And it sort of felt just sort of, I suppose, painful and futile. And I'm lucky that I have the rubric of addiction that allows a kind of... See, any version of the 12 steps is about becoming an observer of your own situation, isn't it? One you go, I'm powerless over drugs and alcohol, my life has become unmanageable, you're taking stock. So you're looking at yourself like, oh yeah, you have to at least in that moment recognise and step back before embarking on a very sort of identifiable hero's journey process of, right, this isn't working, is it possible to change? Am I going to change without accepting new help, new energy, without letting new things come in? You know, like that's the sort of first three steps. So my programme that had been taught to get over drugs and alcohol was newly applicable in a broader context of just life's problems. So, to reflect back what you're saying, know where you are in your own myth and try and transport yourself to a place where you can hear these whispers mm. from without or within that help you into the next transition. And for you, that was fatherhood. Well, Ian... You've used the word whispers, which is precisely and literally the language Bruce uses, who's like an elder, you know, like I sort of see. He says this exactly. And because of like part of my daily meditation prayer sort of process is to ask for, to be alert for, you know, apparent coincidence or synchronicity, when you ask the question in that way, then I have to acknowledge that that's... A germane. That's exactly how he phrases it. If you are serene, if you are present, then you will hear the in his exact words are whispers on the wind. You will be open to, oh, I'm supposed to go this way, I'm not supposed to go that way. If you're caught up in the freneticism of your own ego and your own will, which is derived often from neurosis, it's not who you really are anyway, you can't, the traffic is too noisy, the sort of metropolis of the mind, you can't hear until you sort of step out and become above it. You don't realise that's not who you were anyway. The wound is as big as the wound always was, but the self is able to grow so proportionally it becomes smaller, like you described it as chaos earlier. I was running from the wound, we were like, I mean operating from the wound, and I suppose we've no choice but to do that to a degree, that's, what, that's the nature of pathology. But what has happened is through prayer, meditation, various techniques, listening to teachers, continual surrender, the part of me that is damaged is proportionately a smaller and smaller part as I hopefully grow. That's brilliant. And it takes us to your third choice, which is 
your piece of music and would it be the Smiths, one of the Gallagher brothers, perhaps the Libertines? No, but it was When I Remember This Life, which was performed by Kazumi Nikaido for the Studio Ghibli film Princess Kaguya. I'd love you to explain this choice. Oh, God. When me and my wife got back together, because we'd known each other, the growl will come again, when I was, like, about 30, we'd known each other, but I was no... Like, I knew my wife, Laura, was special when I met her, but I didn't know how to quantify specialness. I had no sort of real barometer for that. I was so dedicatedly in pursuit, or devoutly in pursuit of um, adrenaline, excitement, and, and, and unconsciously, disappointment, rejection, pain, all of those things. So it, when we got back together after like a 10-year interlude or six years, I'm not very good with those type of numbers, but regardless, some... Small year. numbers. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how they operate. <laughs> I know it's a type of language. But like um, some years later, we got back together and we went on a date and we watched Princess Kagawa at that screen on the green Did in you? Islington. Like, yeah, Laura likes Japan. She likes Japanese stuff. She likes aesthetics. And it's pretty interesting, isn't it? Because Japanese culture, if you're like a European, if you're English like me, it's like a different image system and it's a different philosophical underpinning. We assume everything's, you know, paganism via Christianity, etc. But like, you know, that's a whole different, the way that the interior design is different. Laura likes aesthetics very much. You know, she likes beauty. She's an artist and a creative person. She loves the whole look of Japan and that. And I think we did several dates that were built around Japanese themes as I newly wooed my wife. We did a Japan night where I got like Japanese musicians come around the house and Japanese like cooks and stuff like that did sushi and we both put robes on. This is like, you know, early, early, early in the courtship. I'm still in a flat in Shoreditch. I'm still in the house where that Ed Miller band interview happened. I'm still in this place of chaos and madness and I'm like looking for a way out unconsciously and Anyway, like we went to see that Princess Kagawa, and it does that thing that like I referred to a moment ago, which again you must be so familiar with, and it must be part of your alchemy when creating theatre. Of there's moments where it's like, oh my god, I only partially sort of understand that. It's beyond me to understand that. You know, the story of Princess Kagawa is an ancient old Japanese myth about like a woodcutter who finds a little baby in a bamboo stalk and then takes it home to his wife. They're an older couple. They bring her up, they recognise her divinity, not least because they found her in a bloody bamboo stalk. It's difficult to ignore that some power must have been involved. They bring her up, she grows up very, very quickly, I suppose, like bamboo. Maybe there's some sort of allusion to that there. And they want her to be an aristocrat, and she has to return home eventually. Now, because it's a deep, deep, deep myth, the story takes you all sorts of deep places, painful places, and this, like, lullaby story... The reason that I chose it is because when our daughter, first daughter Mabel, was born, Laura played that song. When the baby, you know, when you've got a new baby in your house and God is in the house and you feel like this is sacred, this is holy, this is powerful and gentle. And like, I remember Laura, I'm watching Laura had a moment that was demonstrably more profound than what I was feeling as the person that had carried, created, and given birth to that child. I felt the holiness of it, and then that, and I saw her reaction to that song. And we've subsequently watched the, the film again, and it, like, man, it, it rips my heart out. It, like, rips my heart out. <laughs> Mm-hmm. 
there's a whole critique in the film about the codes of femininity, where the bamboo princess, her eyebrows are plucked and she's put into sort of pretty dresses and she's made to leave all the wildness mm. and love of nature behind. Mm. And she's taught these feminine codes and has to wait for male suitors. Mm. So I found that really moving and I wondered whether you'd watched it with your daughter or whether you're saving this diet of the selfish giant and Princess Kagua for when they're older, your kids. We started to watch it, but she fell asleep. She was into it, actually, and she was enjoying it, but she fell asleep. We were watching it kind of late. So she's not watched it yet and she's not yet four. You know, I tell her fairy stories that I make up and that. You know when we were saying a minute ago about, like, um, Bill Hicks's early comedy, Comedy of Hate and stuff? Well, I, I feel like that's contextualised culturally. Like, he became the kind of comic that there were at that time. That's the type of comic that there is then. You know, that's how you are contextualised. And, and our children, they eat a lot of the culture that's available. They like poor Patrol. You know, now I've not yet studied Poor Patrol and I don't know what kind of themes are available to us. I hope they something must be going on because kids love it, the same as Peppa Pig. There must be something in there that these kids are into. I don't know if it's just aesthetics. But, yeah, there will be a point where I start leveraging culture, you know, what I consider to be cultural important artefacts into their lives. It's not yet, though, Ian, because they're bloody too forthright. Do you feel like you want to be the curator and the arbiter of a healthy cultural diet for your kids and make sure amidst Paw Patrol, which I'm not judging, and <laughs> Peppa Pig, there's enough wild, some of the Studio Ghibli? Yeah, I do think so. And like, I, I realise that thing, you know, parent and parenthesis, that in our case, my wife and I are parents so we're around them to somewhat ensure that they're able to grow into whoever they I mean I've been a parent long enough even at, you know under four years to realize oh there's this thing that's just happening and my job is to allow it to happen and don't fall off the edge of that no don't put your fingers there a Christ you know I mean it's that kind but I'm not imposing I'm when I'm imposing like that I recognize that's sort of problematic though of course I have to but it's in the word it. isn't it you said parent parenthesis parent thesis are you going to offer a thesis to your children through carefully chosen cultural works that can enable them to grow how you want them to grow I'm offering I'm like it's weird isn't it so because you've obviously raised children now you have an adult son and Eden is like 20 wow so like you know you've done it like so I'm not really sure obviously I'm yeah I want them to support West Ham I want them to know about Morrissey and the Smiths I want to share these things with them like I remember you know when I f used to fall in love a lot when I was younger this I was always this is me this is me I'm these things and now I've like I recognize that all of the love that I ever felt has sort of been streamlined into this blade of total devotion and like I want them to receive all of these things that I'm founded upon but I also recognize that they're growing up into a different world they're different people and like i'm sort of learning a lot from them but I, certainly there are things that i really really want them to have all three of the things that we're discussing certainly yeah i mean it's the premise of the podcast 
are we truly what we love? And the mating dance you described when you were younger of all the things you loved. This is me! And the Japanese courtship of Laura. And maybe the key word was, these will be offerings to my children. <laughs> they can pick them up or avoid them. Mm. You know, they might not want to support West Ham, but they might love that story, The Wild, and ask you to tell it again. And I guess you will be sensitive and intuitive about when, like new foods into their palate, you introduce those things. Yeah, I suppose that is how I'm going to do it. Like I've heard, and you know, it's somewhat trite that it's them that parent you. Like that, oh, you have to become the father now. You have to become what's required of you in order to facilitate their growth and nurture. And that is what's been happening so far. It isn't a cultural object where I mostly feel it. It's attitudinal. Like mm. when I sort of say, no, this is, we respect things mm. like that. We don't, we're not, that's not how we treat our house. That's mm. not how we treat animals. We don't talk like that. And then it becomes more nuanced things. Like yesterday, we're in a restaurant and my kid took off her clothes, you know, and I'm like, well, she's like nearly four and I feel like she's going to be hurt. And we were with other people and I don't want her to be embarrassed and I certainly, obviously, don't want her to be shamed. But I also want to protect her. In the end, she's running around in that place. And it's, this is where I experience it. It's like, oh, my job is to protect her, to allow her to be her. And also, I found myself at one moment going, right, look at all these people. Look at what they're doing. Look at the, we're in the, this is the, called the world. <laughs> this is the phrase I said to her. Because, Mabel, sometimes we want everyone looking at us. Sometimes we don't want everyone looking at us. I feel like and I was really hitting my stride, I felt, <laughs> into a kind of, this, I believe, is one of them times we don't want everyone looking Off she fucking went. <laughs> she had decided that she did want everyone looking at her, and she was into it, and <laughs> it wasn't... I, I mean, if I was to play that song on the back of what you just said, I think there'd be a Pavlovian emotional response in you, because, of course, the father in Princess Kaguya has to let the child go. And partly the myth of the story is surrender and sacrifice, where most of the film, and you get it in the song, most of the film, the parents are trying to, particularly the father, control and culture the child in a certain way. And that becomes unsustainable. And the song you've chosen is full of this sort of nostalgic longing really yeah. as the protagonist looks back and thinks about what is really meaningful and it isn't what the father provided which is you know 20 suitors and good food and a what do you call that thing a, the, the instrument the koto and all that that must be really powerful it kills me really the father's sort of final words to her and it, the film plays out on the song that I chose and you know, like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I got it wrong, I got it wrong. Now, this is where I feel fortunate, because I know you had your son very young, um, you know, you're on a different path to me. But like, I feel grateful that I was 40, because I wouldn't have been able to, well, I mean, I'd have dealt with what I had to deal with, but, like, the fact is, is that I'm, at this point, I know, I'll make the mistakes, I know that sort of Michael Mead says again, like, you know, that you, the parent wounds the child, you cannot but wound your child the same as you we were wounded by our parents in a Philip Larkin way but like I what I hope is that 
you know, I'm returning as much as I can to my own awareness. And like, I don't want to make that mistake because I'm fucking watching Princess Kaguya and I'm seeing, do not impose yourself. Let this person be who they are. It breaks your heart when they pluck her eyebrows and make her blacken her teeth when they civilize her and stuff. And, but I suppose as well, I'm, you know, you're going to go in the world. Your kids are going into the world. You, they're going to have to deal with reality. If you've not equipped them to deal with reality, you've failed as a parent. There's these people, there's these people, there's these situations, there's this drama, there's this playbook, there's, you know, if I don't send my kids out into the world able to do, because obviously, like, in this sort of, you know, there is a sort of a mythic appetite to just, I I'll keep you forever, I'll keep you forever, but that's, you know, not how it's going to play out. And the congregation through Bill Hicks sadly passes at 32 the mortality pulse through our conversation. And that whole film, that whole gig, seems to be a manifestation of his life, that it begins fueled by hatred and it's vicious, but it ends in a transcendent place, like he seemed to when you read his writings at the end of his life. Through the loneliness in The Selfish Giant and this sense of the seasons and then opening up to community, and love and connection and faith through to the mystical poetic longing of the song in Princess Kaguya and the letting go. It's very beautiful that trio, isn't it? Were you aware of their interconnectedness when you put them together? No, I just was thinking that the brief was like you say, that it's an impossible job such a small number and, uh, and such a vast menu but like, I just thought or, you know, I went on Desert Island Discs or whatever and you can't help but you don't want to look a dickhead, you want to choose things that, like, oh, my, oh you know the score or whatever and I can't remember what I chose I know there was like, you know, I would have tagged Morrissey, I know that I would have um, like, you know, I feel like I made jokes about no, but I know there's a lot of like, I was really into listening to mantras and Hindu yeah. music, which again I would stand by, but here these are for, like, Bill Hicks is in, in the Mount Rushmore, such as it is, of my personal culture i do these meditations where i think of um icons and figures like i imagine them i call upon them as deities i sit in an imaginary sweat lodge and i meditate with muhammad ali or mm. john lennon or mm. david foster wallace or whoever i'm calling down that day and like him bill hicks he's there forever mm. because of mm. the point of intervention first mm. cut is the deepest because mm. i was 18 you know i'm not going to be that age again no mm. one's ever going to do that again mm. in in the landscape of my psyche and like wild and with that particular story I, like i can back it up and I, it, obviously all of these things as well in you know like to quote shakira the hips don't lie <laughs> the fact is them things everyone i mean that bill hicks gig smashed me when i first saw it and that story still can the selfish giant that song i'm keeping it arm's length discussing it now because it's embedded in my love for my children and my wife and you know like that stuff is you know that, that's the kernel you know and isn't it amazing we have access to all of these things all these stories sensibilities jokes mm. beautiful art in the cartoon of the film and what they do to us and thank you for sharing russell yeah these are good these podcasts are doing i'll, I'll listen to these good 
That will give me one listen. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, even the ones that aren't me. Like, oh, great. Like, Lots of really good people. I'm in a pantheon. Yeah, you're in there. What I Love was created and hosted by me, Ian Rickson. The theme music is by PJ Harvey. This episode was recorded at Norden Farm Centre for the Arts and is produced by Sarah Murray for Storyglass. And during our conversation, Russell and I discussed the film Revelations, written and performed by Bill Hicks, directed by Chris Bold and produced by Tiger Aspect Productions, the song When I Remember This Life, sung by Kazumi Nikaido from the original soundtrack album of the film, the tale of the Princess Kaguya on Tokuma Japan Communications and Studio Ghibli Records, and The Selfish Giant, written by Oscar Wilde. Thank you, and see you next time. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.